Welcome to The Smiley Connection, a podcast brought to you by the Smiley Professionals Network and The Smiley. On this show, we'll bring you professionals from all walks of life and across all industries to help you grow professionally and personally. We'll laugh, we'll learn, we'll connect. And who knows, you may find your next Smiley Connection on our show. Hello with everyone, I'm Sony Gossam, and on today's show we have Latif Nasser, a science journalist, a co-host of Radiolab, and the host of the Netflix documentary series Connected. Latif also spent three years reporting on a miniseries through Radiolab, focusing on a Guantanamo Bay detainee who shares his name. Latif chats with us in today's episode about his path to podcasting, how his projects have changed him, and how he's raising a mixed family, among many other things. When I was 10 years old, I created a monthly newspaper for my class. I called it Kids News. As the editor-in-chief of Kids News, I wrote a column, included horoscopes, and even asked the artist in the class to create a comic strip. I did that for about three years. And then fast forward years later, after having joined my high school newspaper and winning city-level awards, I decided journalism was something I wanted to pursue seriously. But my parents, who have always had my best interests at heart, had other plans. I remember my mom and I would always have conversations about me going into medicine. And when I would tell her I wasn't interested, she'd proceed to explain the variety of jobs, like a surgeon or a pediatrician or a nurse. And while I recognized the importance and meaningfulness that such a path entails, I just knew it wasn't for me. I would have rather written about those doctors and nurses and surgeons and scientists. By the time my freshman year of college arrived, My mom finally understood and saw how the journalism and media world really excited me. She was on board with my career dreams. My dad eventually got on board too, by the end of my freshman year, as it took a little longer to muster up the courage to have a conversation with him. Now, that's my story for how I ended up going into journalism. And for this week's guest, Latif Nasser, journalism wasn't always at the forefront of his mind. In fact, he majored in theater at Dartmouth and had thought about becoming a playwright Though those goals soon took a turn when he wasn't able to get a job during the 2008 financial crisis. But even so, Latif's parents always encouraged him to try everything and learn as much as he could. As a child, Latif took engineering classes and ice skating classes and even attended a circus camp, which ignited his interest in theater. My conversation with Latif was about two hours long, so we've decided to split up the episode into two parts. Today, you'll hear more about Latif's recent projects, including moments like filming in the Amazon rainforest. And he'll also talk about how he chooses to raise a mixed family. Latif, yeah? welcome in Baudelaire. Wow, it kind of just looks like everything else. <laughs> My name is Latif Nasser. I'm a science reporter. Oh, wow. And this is a show about the astonishing connections all around us. Connections between you, me, our world, that'll make you see that world in a whole new way. In August 2020, Netflix released a six-part docuseries called Connected, starring Latif Nasser. It's essentially a science show about how the world is, well, connected, from poop and dust to surveillance and clouds. So how did you land this sweet deal? And did you ever feel that imposter syndrome at all? Oh, totally. So I got an email out of the blue 
from someone high up at this production company. That production company was Zero Point Zero Productions, the same company that did Anthony Bourdain's Parts Unknown and even David Letterman's new show on Netflix. And what they said was... Basically, we're interested in you and we're interested in making a science show. And do you want to talk? And I had never worked in TV before. I knew their work in the sense of like, I was a big fan of Anthony Bourdain and knew that they made quality stuff, but like, what do I know about making TV? Lutziff had done two main things before that. The first was the podcast work he did at Radiolab, produced by WNYC Studios. And the second were a couple of TED Talks, which Lutziff thinks are what captured the production company's attention. What they're trying to do is do the same thing to the science show that they had done with Anthony Bourdain to the cooking show. When I was growing up, the cooking show, it was a man or a woman behind a counter in a kitchen, and that was it. Like, that's what you would see. And then they would cook a meal, and then you would look at it, and then they would taste it, and they'd be like, it's so great. And they would never say it's not great. And you'd be like, I don't know. Then Anthony Bourdain came along, and they blew up that model. And you're like, oh, you can go around the world. You can do new things. You can learn not just about food, but about culture, about other kinds of people. And that was so exciting. And what I learned quickly from them, talking to them on the phone, a guy named Eric, was that they were trying to do the same thing for the science show. And so that was like a really exciting invitation. And we took a long time to think together like, oh, could we do this? How can we do this? We didn't want our show to feel like a science lesson or like a lecture. We wanted it to feel like the feeling that I love, that I want so much. The feeling of going on a Wikipedia and then learning something and then you're like, oh, and then hyperlinking to a totally different Wikipedia article. You're sort of like in a black hole of stuff, yeah. And then you just tumble down. You're just jumping from thing to thing. And I was like, oh, let's capture that feeling. How can you turn that into a TV show? Lutthoff said that throughout the entire process, there were many, many times where you felt like an imposter. I'm talking to like... Emmy award winning. These are people who, for them, it wasn't Anthony Bourdain. It was Tony. I'm like, who's Tony? Oh, you know, I was working with people who had proved themselves and had become heroes to me in some way. And yeah, I was really grateful. I was really excited, but I was also terrified. I'd never done any of that kind of thing before. And even so many steps along the way, like I remember the moment when I saw raw footage of the first interview that I did, because I interview people all the time, just I'm not on camera for it. And then I was like watching myself interview and I was like, oh, this is horrible. Why are you touching your face? Why are you nodding like an idiot donkey? I feel like I got a lot of trust from this production company and then ultimately from Netflix too. And I was like, do I know what I'm doing? I'm trying to reinvent this form, but I don't fully know what I'm doing. But it's also, I think in a way, it's just trying to turn that into the fuel to just make the thing better, make the thing weirder, make the thing more different. I'm not Bill Nye the Science Guy. I'm not as smart as Bill Nye the Science Guy. I'm a lot dumber than he is. I don't know what I'm doing. I'm a lot less experienced. But like, it's okay. Build that into the thing. And then hopefully it'll speak for itself. Yeah. I also feel like as journalists, your role is to help those that have the knowledge to give them a platform and to be able to get that knowledge out of them. Exactly. Exactly. I spent the holiday season last year watching all of Connected. And I was really impressed with the creativity and word choices, the script writing, and storytelling. The dust episode, for instance, featured buoys in the water that collected dust. Lutthiff described them as solar-powered seaborne vacuum cleaners. The analogies were just so great. There was even alliteration, like in the poop episode where Lutthiff says whale-sized waste and... Poo-poo platter was my favorite. 
I was very lucky to have the team at all the production people. They helped me so much with research, to some degree with writing too. And the fun of it, it's sort of two things. One, about the simplicity of it. I don't understand a lot of these things. And I'm very upfront about that. And in a way, it's like, I need this person and or the research that I ultimately do and my team does to like help me understand it. Thing needs to be explained to me very clearly and cleanly. Otherwise, I'm just not going to get it. And so I need to explain it to myself first before I can explain it to anybody else. The other thing about the creativity, to me, that's the fun. That's so much the fun. It's like finding those analogies, finding those little plays on word. And so many of them are really dumb and punny and it's funny. I get made fun of a lot at Radiolab for that. Hopefully that's a thing that'll make what otherwise can seem very heavy and very dense and very confusing. If you sort of do a little linguistic tap dance, it makes it more fun for me and hopefully it makes more fun for other people too. Yeah, definitely. It makes it more entertaining for us to watch and learn about these really cool and important sciencey topics. So I know you said there are a lot of people on the team helping you through this. So how big was the production team basically? So there's the pre-production Production, post-production. Pre-production is research, calling people, booking locations, that kind of thing. Figuring out the stories, reading all the scientific papers, make sure this story holds up and makes sense. And then production is where it balloons out. That's the biggest team of people we had. So it'd be like a director, director of photography, camera person, producer, and then maybe like some local help. But we had three of those teams. And so those teams, they would be flying all over the world doing segments, and I would be flying to meet them. So they had all their crazy schedules where they were like, okay, tomorrow we're going to Estonia, and then three days after that, we're going to Brazil. Or It was like a seven-dimensional puzzle, like how to get all the equipment and the production team and then meet all to the right place at the right time. And it'll be like one of the segments we did, the Viries, like we were waiting, when are the Viries gonna fly into Delaware? We don't know. And then post-production, it was a team of editors, I would say like six or so editors. And they also had producers too, and other folks. So they would be chopping down the episode. Maybe less than that. It's been a very long year since then. But yeah, it was a wonderfully collaborative, really smart team. While filming, Let the learned a lot of new things about TV compared to podcasting. I just always thought that Anthony Bourdain was just walking through the desert by himself. And then it turns out, no, obviously there's a camera there and then there's someone operating the camera. And then behind that, there's the producer who booked the shoot. And then there's the driver and the doctor because they're in the middle of the desert if something happens. And then there's security guard and this person and that person. Then there's like this caravan behind the thing. And you don't realize that there is so much going on there. And just for me, not having had any experience in that world, I was like, oh, wow. To make a podcast, it just takes a few people. To make a documentary series, it really takes a village. I had no idea that there was like a doctor on set all the time, which makes sense now. Oh, yeah. For the trip. So we had a doctor. We had security. Like, for instance, when we went to Chad in Central Africa, we had this security consultant and a local detachment of guards and army people. Because when we landed, we got the security briefing and the guy who's amazing and a world-class level because Netflix and insurance and all these things. But he basically was like, look, you guys just landed at the airport and I got an update on my phone. And you know who else got an update? ISIS, because they're right over there. They know you're here. They know Netflix saying you're here. They're a few kilometers that way. Here are all our security protocols. And so you're like, oh my God, this is for real. This is really serious. And in a way, when I 
I'm doing research. I travel a lot to do research for Radiolab for the podcast. We never do anything like that. My Zoom recorder is the size of a candy bar. That's my whole production team, basically, or at least what I need in the field. Whereas this is like just a whole nother level. Wow, that's crazy. Yeah, you're like, oh, I'm just here to talk about dust. I'm just here to talk about dust. I don't, I don't want to get in any trouble. Yeah. So you're pretty much traveling all over the world from Austria to Houston to Portugal to the Amazon rainforest. And as you said, the desert. How many months did filming take for Connected? It took longer than we wanted it to take and we thought it would take. But it took, I think, like three or four months, something like that. It would be basically 24 to 48 hours in a place and just flying all over the world in that way. And I traveled a lot yeah, before, but intense. I never traveled like that for three straight months. And I was like, well, how are you? I don't even know what time zone I'm on. I'm waking up in the middle of the night being like in a panic, having no idea where on earth I am. Yeah, but how did you prepare for the interviews? You're traveling so much. You're across different time zones. You're thousands of miles away from your family and you're having to prepare for a bunch of different topics at once. So how did you keep yourself sane and how did you keep yourself prepared? Yeah, and often like rolling off of a red-eye flight and then have like an hour at the hotel, I can fall, I can take a nap and then I'm going to go straight to do an interview. And for me, luckily, well, two things. It's funny. You have to be extremely prepared and then you kind of have to be not at all prepared and you need to be both of those. You need to be extremely prepared in that you know what is the point of this interview. And unlike a podcast interview where I can interview people for an hour, three hours, and then pick it back up tomorrow and then do it again in two weeks when the person has had more time to think about it. And I can use all that time to gain their confidence and da, 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 da. This is totally different. It's like, okay, we're meeting here at this time. The sun is only going to be there for 15 minutes. This person, it's their first time on camera. You're meeting them for the first time, but we only have 15 minutes. We need a three minute thing. It's like, go. And so it was kind of terrifying. And so I had to come in prepared in the sense of knowing, okay, what's the one point I need them to hit? At the same time, you want to be open to being genuinely actually surprised. You want to let the person be more than just a talking head who's like parroting a point that they made in a scientific paper. You want that person to be able to flower and be a person and have something to say that's more than just something you could read in their papers. So do you have any favorite moments or experiences while filming Connected? I love all the episodes and all the episodes were a joy and a challenge and at some moments very frustrating and maddening and they almost feel like children or something. But the one that kind of is closest to my heart to pick a favorite is the dust episode. And that one really, I think both because of the travel that I got to do to go out into the middle of the Sahara Desert. Wow. And you look in every direction, all you see is desert. You see nothing in any direction. And you can look up and you can actually see the sky and the stars. Like that's wow. And then to go to the Amazon rainforest, climbing that tower was so incredible. And there's kind of a funny thing that happened and super memorable. So spoiler, I guess, we climbed this tower at the end, the skyscraper in the middle of the Amazon. And the elevator was broken that day. And so we had to climb up on the stairs. It's basically the height of the Eiffel Tower. And then, so we get there, it takes us so long. Like for me, that was one thing. 
Imagine for all the camera people and all the other producers and stuff who were like carrying gear. That's really hard to carry that gear up that high. It's really heavy gear. So they carried it all the way up. The expert who was guiding us through was this German meteorologist. And so we go all the way up the top and it's like a gorgeous view. And he describes it as like a great big bowl of salad and all the trees as broccolis. It was just so, I think you can make the case that it is objectively the best view on planet Earth. So beautiful. We're up there, we set up their shots, we start to do the interview. We're like maybe four minutes into the interview, just getting started. And you can see in the little monitor, the look on his face, uh-oh, something happened. And we're like, what is wrong? And he looked and there was a bank of clouds coming and they were like very gray. And he's like, that's a rainstorm coming. And it's not just a rainstorm, it's a thunderstorm. And we're basically standing on a giant lightning rod. Oh, and lightning hits this tower while we are on it we will be electrocuted. We need to get off here. We have like 15 minutes. And it took us, remember, an hour and a half or more to get up there in the first place to climb the stairs. So he's like, we have 15 minutes, we gotta go. For me, I mean, obviously who cares about a show when you and your crew's lives are at stake, but also I was like, we literally flew all the way here. We had to come by boat and truck and this and that and the other thing. If we go down right now, we don't have time to come back up while there's still sunlight. We're leaving first thing tomorrow morning. Like this is the crowning shot of this episode and we don't have it yet. Like, what are we gonna do? And I was like thinking that and then I was like, oh, shut up, who cares? We need to go down. And then we did like maybe 30 seconds more of the interview and then just bolted down. We were running so fast, we were drenched with sweat. It took us maybe about 15 minutes to get to the bottom. And we were just drenched and we were like terrified. And I remember like when we got right to the bottom, we just, all of us, I'm a lanky weakling, but the rest of them, they're like ripped and they're like really fit. And they were like just on the ground. We were all lying on the ground, drenched in our own sweat, panting because we were terrified. And then as like we're looking up, drenched in sweat, we see the storm clouds just pass over the tower. They didn't even, <laughs> didn't, didn't the storm. Seriously? And we were like, oh my God. We were like, now we don't have time to go back up and we don't have the shots and what are we gonna do? And then we came up with a compromise, which was that the next morning at first light, we went up very, very low and then got a bunch more shots. Then we were good. But like, it was one of those moments where I was like, oh my God, wow. When you are working with a team and you have sort of things like that happen, you get so close to them. And it's just one of those moments where I was just like, I was so lucky to be part of it. Yeah, such a memorable experience, like scary and funny at the same time. So when Connected came out in August, you and your wife, Carly Mensch, welcomed a second child, a baby boy into the family. What was that like? Yeah, we had our second kid. And it's funny because my wife also, she's a TV writer. She also had a show on Netflix, which also premiered around the time our first son was born. So it was a really weird thing where both of us had shows and we had a baby at the same time. And it was kind of surreal. And it was also nice because it's one of those things where when you release something into the world, you work so hard on it, but you don't know what people are going to say and if they're going to like it or if they're going to hate it. And it's one of those things, I think for both of us, it was a nice thing where it was like, 
I'm worked so hard to make this thing that I hope the world loves, but I don't know if they will. And in case they don't, it's good because I have a very meaningful distraction here and a thing to put in perspective that even if the world does hate it, it's just a TV show. It's okay. And I have a job and a function and a role that is much more important than that. It sort of puts things in perspective. And that was a really wonderful and healthy and helpful thing. Yeah. And it felt like a fortuitous coincidence. Yeah. And Speaking of Carly and her being a television writer and producer and co-creator of GLOW, and she's written on a lot of other shows, how are you able to balance these time-consuming careers with raising children? That is a million-dollar question. It is actually more than a million-dollar question, I think. hundred million-dollar question, maybe, let's say. Especially this year. It's obviously been worse for a lot of other people in a lot of other ways, but I think for everyone with kids, like the question of childcare, how to manage that, how to negotiate that, how to find a way to do work that you love and that you think is meaningful and that you think will make a difference in the world and you hope will make a difference in the world while at the same time playing the role at home that you need to play for your kids. I don't know. That is a question. We're literally in the middle of it. I literally had to postpone this interview an hour because kid commitments that I'm still in the middle of that. I think that the one good thing with both my wife and I were kind of workaholics, but the the good thing is our workaholism is staggered. So when my wife is in production on her show, usually I'm not going on reporting trips or anything like that. So I can take an outsized role and vice versa. When I'm off traveling for three months, she steps up and is sort of single parent. So we waffle between being single parents and co-parents. But also this last year, 2020, it sort of convinced me more than ever before that childcare is like a utility or something. It's like electricity or water or something. In a modern society, it should be figured out and it should be taken care of. It should not be such a sort of patchwork of systems and systems that very much benefit the kind of wealthy and powerful and really doubly punish people who don't have means. I think that, I don't know if you're a parent, it's a really hard thing and it's such a full job. And it's one that I think like, hopefully 2020 was a wake up call and people will start to take it more seriously. Lutzif, who is a smiley, and Carly, who is Jewish, met while studying at Dartmouth. So A, what has it been like to raise a mixed family? And also, what was it like when you first told your parents about Carly? Yeah, when I first told my parents about her and vice versa, I think there was kind of a, huh? Like, a, huh, that's not what we were expecting. But I think actually very quite early on when they met her, on one hand, they were kind of like won by her charm and really like she's just a charming, wonderful person and impossible not to love from my POV. But also part of it was that what we realized were the kind of the smiley home and cultural values that I was raised with and the Jewish home and cultural values that she was raised with, they were basically the same. We were really immigrant-minded, education-valuing. There was so much more that was shared, actually. And it was one of these things where it was like, oh, you like that too? Oh, we do that too. And so many points along the way, it was like, oh, we have a version of that. And so it actually became a thing where very quickly after we met and started seeing each other and introduced ourselves to respective families, it was like, oh, this feels actually strangely natural. So that was great. And now we have kids. And now it's kind of a question. I think when I was growing up, my dad would always say, oh, you can't have a mixed family because the kids, that's where it becomes complicated. How are you going to raise your kid? And which tradition? What da, 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 da. And for me, what we've tried hard to do is we kind of want our kids to be both in some way and to whatever degree that they want to subscribe to and participate in those worlds. So each of our kids has a 
Muslim name and a Jewish name. And we gave them both so that they have the option when they grow up, if they like one or identify with one more than the other. And then also for our older kid, we use my last name. And then for our younger kid, we used Carly's last name. So we mixed it up. I think I want them to be these little walking, shining beacons to be like, look, like this is not only possible, it's awesome. Look at these mixed kids and look at how they're kind of like a living instantiation of this idea of like connection and of plurality. Yeah, exactly. This is important. And I hope that that's kind of a legacy. I hope that's more important than any podcast or TV show I'll ever make. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's beautiful. It's truly wonderful. This is a story about two nerdy Muslim kids from the suburbs named Latif Nasser. I'm one of them. And the other is detainee number 244 at Guantanamo Bay. Latif has also hosted a mini podcast series with Radiolab called The Other Latif. This was around the time he was head of research at Radiolab. He spent three years reporting on Abdul Latif Nasser, also known as Guantanamo Bay detainee 244. Now, Abdul Latif Nasser has been held there for almost 20 years. The interesting thing is there was no trial held and no charges filed against him. And in 2016, he was eventually cleared for release by a panel of six government agencies. But then, because of some paperwork mix-up and a new incoming president's decree stopping releases from the camp, Abdul Latif Nasser is still there. I just had all these questions and there was no information. And I was like, somebody needs to figure this out. And so I was like, I guess no one's going to do this. And I guess if anyone is going to do it, it's going to be me. This is the hardest story I've ever reported. Was he a member of the Taliban? Classified. Was he tortured? Yes. He was in this particular strange situation where I had these two portraits of him. One, I found these leaked documents from the Department of Defense that said he was just a really bad guy. He was Al-Qaeda's top explosives expert and a top advisor to Osama bin Laden and these kinds of things. And then I talked to his lawyer and his lawyer was like, no, 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 he was wrong place, wrong time. He was never in Al-Qaeda. You know, he was sold for a bounty. He's never had a trial. And I was like, oh, wow, these are two very, very different portraits of this guy. And I kind of want to know more. And when Latif pitched that story idea at an editorial meeting, pretty much everyone rejected it, except for one person. And the response at the beginning was like not so hot. People were like, oh, okay, you share a name with this guy, but you can't talk to him because you're not allowed to talk to detainees. They basically said one of the co-hosts of the show at the time, Robert Krulwich, who's a wonderful guy, he was like, nah, I'm afraid for your security if you start like sniffing down these. I don't think this is a good idea. You'll find yourself on a no-fly list or something. And then another re reaction, again, very smart reaction, was, look, Guantanamo is a black hole. Oh, there was mistreatment or mismanagement of this guy that we don't know who he is, that he was there. That's not surprising. We've heard 20 years of that same story. So the reaction wasn't super encouraging. And I still kind of nurtured this and I was like, okay, I guess this is just going to be a personal project of mine that I'm just going to do, not for work, just kind of dig into this guy. And then I was very lucky that one of the now executive producer at the show, her name's Susie Lechtenberg, she was like, this is interesting. Keep talking to me about this. And I sent this guy letters and they would come back and I did this and that and the other thing. But there's one key piece of evidence that we actually end the show with that once I got that, I showed it to Susie. And Susie was like, oh, this is for real now. Like, now we're going to do this. And it's not going to be one episode. It's going to be a series. And we're going to do all kinds of different things. We're going to go to Tora Bora. And we're going to go here. And we're going to go there. And so I was really grateful for that. And her letting me, in the same way that the folks at 0.0 .0 did. Yeah. And, I mean, during this whole reporting process, it seemed like you 
probably ran into a lot of challenges, right? I mean, just even not being able to speak to the guy that you're doing this whole series on. But you also managed to be able to talk to some interesting people like Gary from the CIA. But he like revealed yeah. all the details about the first Al-Qaeda raid, right? And Yeah, Gary Bernstein. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then General Mike Leonard, who uh, opened up Guantanamo Bay. Mm -hmm. How were you able to get them to open up and to agree to be interviewed? Yeah, it's no small thing in the way that Guantanamo, it's a thing nobody wants to talk about. We had so many people former detainees, former guards, former administrators, politicians. Basically, what we figured out was because this isn't a newsy issue the way it had been beginning of the Obama administration, that kind of thing, nobody had anything to gain from talking to us. It didn't really help anybody. And so it was like, how do you persuade these people who have nothing to gain to talk? I was lucky all of those people had written books before. So we were like, basically, I can even show you my library. We went through a supermarket sweep of every book, even remotely related to Guantanamo. We bought and read and we're like, can we talk to this guy? Can we talk to this guy? Every footnote was like, oh, how do we find this guy? Can we talk to this person? Okay, let's try to talk to this person. And then we emailed 10 and then one emails us back kind of thing. It's just a numbers game. It's find as many people who have talked before and who might be willing to talk. That was part of it. Another thing is that we'd be in long protracted conversations with, for instance, former Guantanamo detainees or people who work at the Defense Department or this thing or that thing. And and people would be like, look, I want to talk to you here. I think you're doing the right thing. Like, here's some information, but I can't talk to you. For example, former Guantanamo detainee, they'd be like, look, like I'm in this very precarious situation right now. I'm a former Guantanamo detainee. I'm not a super popular guy. If I call attention to myself, like people are going to hate me even more. They've forgotten about me. So I'm living my peaceful life. Why would I want to disrupt that? Or someone currently working in the defense department or someone who is like, I'm not currently working, but I want to get a job back there. So I'm not going to spill secrets on my former employer because I want to get a job again. You would do so many interviews, hours and hours and hours and hours and hours. And you'd wind up with one crumb of information. And then even that one crumb, you'd be like, do I even believe this? I don't even know if it's true. Is this guy trying to spin me? It was a very frustrating, I think national security reporting, this is my sort of one foray into it, but it seems like that's pretty par for the course in that field. But for me, I was like, oh, I come from science reporting. Like these scientists are desperate to talk to us and they will tell us too much information and they will give us every footnote of everything. Whereas here, I'm like dragging out anything I could possibly do. And people are just so reluctant. And so for me, it was a real professional challenge and getting people to talk every time it was hard. And so now that we have a new administration coming in, are there predictions of what is going to happen? Are people or advocates are going to push for his release? Yeah, this is a great question. And it's one I've been like kind of reporting in the last few weeks and trying to talk to people. It's pretty opaque what's going to happen. I think if anything is going to happen, it's not going to happen. Like when Obama came into office, it was like first executive order he signed was about Guantanamo. Like that was the first order of business. That's clearly both because of the state of the world and because of the public opinion and all these kinds of things. And that's not what is his first order of business, and it should not be his first order of business, President Biden. But I do think that there's a very real possibility that Abdul Latif Nasser will be sent home. I think if anybody at Guantanamo does, I think he will, if not first, then second. I think he is sort of the lowest of the low-hanging fruit in terms of the guys that are still there to be sent home or somewhere other than Guantanamo. If I were to bet, I think that 
a few months into the year. I think he may get released, but I really don't know. There's so many variables and, and question marks. And I've been literally trying to report this exact question. And I, I, I just don't know. Yeah, only time will tell. Yeah, exactly. So we've talked extensively about your work and it's incredibly insightful. But I also want to ask you, from all the recent things you've done, how have any of these projects changed you? How have they impacted you? Oh, so much. I mean, I think the thing that is kind of in common with all the projects that I've done and the projects and really like 2020 and this pandemic, which is things that we've all been thinking about. It's about connections. It's connection between me and this guy who has my name, connections between dust in one place and dust in another place. It's connections between facial surveillance being used on animals and the wildlife and then being used on Uyghurs in China or whatever. These kinds of connections, some are beautiful, some are terrifying, some are funny. To me, I think it's that thing. It's that thing that is this sort of constant refrain that I think about a lot. What are the connections that we can't even perceive? What are the connections that are there, but they're just out of reach? And to me, I feel like that's something that I want to be doing as a journalist, finding those connections, exposing those connections, and making us realize that as much as we want to silo ourselves off as individuals, as countries, as cultures or religions or whatever, that idea of connections and connectedness is so important. Like even this pandemic, that's the most obvious lesson of it. It's like, oh yeah, we're all connected. Our health is dependent on one another. It's incontrovertibly true. And I'm not sure I would have seen it in that way or thought of it in that way before. But now that's something I really care about. That's something that like in my work, I want to carry forward is this idea of connection. Like I just can't stop thinking about it. Yeah, I think the Connected series really did a great job of just showing that it makes you change your perspective on the universe and how all not just the people, but the animals and nature and just all this life breathing on planet Earth and maybe like in the galaxy and the solar system, they all have a purpose sort of. Yeah, and that if you kind of acknowledge that and take it to heart, like then maybe we would all start acting in kind of different ways that would make things better. Thanks so much for tuning in to this episode of The Smiley Connection. Tune in next time to hear the rest of Lithif's story, particularly about his childhood, how he went to boarding school, and how he ended up in science journalism. If you're interested in learning more about Lithif's work, you can check out a few resources and links to his past projects in the show notes. And if you liked the show, help us out by hitting the subscribe button, rating the show, and leaving a review. More so, if you didn't like the show, tell us how we can improve. We'd really appreciate your feedback and support. As always, you can chat with us and ask us any questions at ipnpodcast at ipnonline.net. This episode was produced by me and edited by the talented Castle Our cover art is designed by Nadia Khan and Shaquille Mohamed. Marketing for this episode was carried out by the marketing extraordinaire, Samin Jawani. Also, many thanks to Zoha Momin, the head of strategic initiatives at IPN, and Farhan Manjiani for all his helpful guidance and charm in securing speakers. Music included in this episode are Piano Inspire by Dragonov89, Calm Wind by Fan Pak, Modular Ambient 04 by S. Schiedel, Awakening Monster Hunter by Azar Hermawan, Piano in the Great Hall by Nature's Eye, Time by Ashutosh Music, Trans 3 by One Tomorrow 2, Deep Thoughts by Caffeine Creek Band, Ambient Piano and Pad by Julius H., Freeze My Soul by Dream Heaven, and A Spring Without You also by Dream Heaven. Thank you so much to those who believed in this My Connection from the beginning and to those who continue to support it. We're incredibly grateful.